Good evening, and tonight on The Primary Source, I'd like to welcome artist and lawyer Chuck Bonschman. To start things off, Chuck, I wanted to ask you about your interest in art. How, how long have you had this passion in art? It's probably pretty much ever since I can remember. I, I've always been doing, you know, art things. Uh, when you first uh, start in school, you know, you're doing little projects and stuff like that. And so I was, I was doing those things and uh, probably doing little creative things at home also. So it's just always been part of my life. And now, where, where do you originally hail from? Well, I was born in Paducah, Kentucky, but I wasn't really raised there. My parents were from Pittsburgh. And uh, after when I was about three years old, we moved to Ohio. And then when I was in um, uh, uh, third grade, we moved down to Miami. And I pretty much grew up in Miami. Okay. Would, would you say that? influence the way you learned art at all or influenced you as a person now? Well, I'm sure it influenced me as a person, probably not so much uh, uh, in terms of my artistic background. That was probably more of a family thing and, and just the natural, uh, you know, educational process. As a young adult moving on to college, how did you continue to build your art skills as you went along? Well, you know, when I, when I went to college, um, I, I got a, a number of different, you know, part-time jobs in addition to going to school. And I took some art courses, of course, in college. And um, I didn't take any really, as far as I recall, in, in high school because I went to a, a kind of a prep school. And it was just like a, you know, a, a liberal arts kind of education preparing you for college and all. And uh, but in, in college, I, I took some uh, art courses and I also had some part time jobs. I was a projectionist for an art for a uh, film classics league, which were the art films of the days. And um, so that was one of the things I did. Then I also worked on the school newspaper. I went to the University of Florida and we had a daily newspaper, which had, you know, had had deadlines of production every day. So I worked on that, and I, I was doing production work, and I wheedled my way into getting to do some cartoons for, you know, kind of in support of the, the football team. You know, when they were playing another, uh, another college, I'd make some kind of a jokey cartoon about them beating up, you know, because we were the Florida Alligators. So you'd always have an alligator biting the tail of a bulldog or something like that. And then I'm, I also got to do some advertising cartoons for a local flying school. And uh, I, I did some of those. And then eventually I became um, editor of the, or I became the humor editor of the Florida Orange Peel, which was sort of a national lampoon type magazine that we had at the University of Florida. So I got, I got involved in that sort of stuff right away. What would you say was your favorite part of continuing your passion for art during college? Well, you know, it just was all over the place. Like I, I remember um, in those days, I, I started. I was actually doing some painting also, and I remember I made. That was the first time I exhibited anything, you know, in an art exhibit, and I had made a um, a, a nude painting of a girl standing holding a sign, which was from the behind. So it was just her, you know, just her back and her buttocks and the tops of her legs and stuff, you know, and um, I put it on an exhibit, and somebody stole it, <laughs> so. Since the uh, exhibit was insured, I actually got paid. So that was my first money I made from art. Quite the sensation. Yeah. And after college, now you've you've had you've done a lot of different things in art. What did you find to, to what did you gravitate towards most 
you know. Well, I, you know, I, I, I was always uh, more of a sculptor than anything else. I made, you know, uh, little carvings and, and things when I was a, when I was a kid. And in fact, uh, in uh, high school, I formed a club, I forget, wood, wood, Woodchucks Club or something like that, but with wood carving. And it's really funny because I had some of my classmates sign up and we'd sit around and talk about wood carving and stuff like that. And I don't know if they really had any interest in wood carving or not. <laughs> it was just fun to get together. But, you know, uh, I got drafted out of uh, college. Um, I, when I went to college, I was an architecture major. Because it's a kind of combination of uh, uh, seriousness and art. Uh, you know, we put together and may, may, maybe make a living. But I got drafted out of college. And when I went in the Army, the um, I, I was sitting and, and doing sketches between Army BS that they have you doing and the, and the uh, sergeant saw me doing it. So the next thing I knew, I was painting a mural in the mess hall while everybody else marched out to the, uh, the, the rifle range. And then when I went to, uh, I was stationed in Germany. So I went to the company commander because these people in the Army are all very egotistical. They're trying to outdo each other. So I went to my company commander and I said, look, I'm a sculptor. I can make these beautiful sculptures from the front of the building, you know, and he thought, oh, it'll make me better than the other guys. So he, he let me do that. So instead of playing army, I was out there doing sculptures and uh, I made my first public sculpture uh, in uh, Germany. Wow. What, what was it of? Well, it uh, it looked like a um, kind of a, a concrete wave. It was about eight feet tall, made up of uh, four beams that curved like a wave. But the um, interesting part of it was that if you looked at it from 60 degrees above, for instance, if you were a, some kind of an officer flying over in a helicopter, and if you looked down on it, it was the international peace symbol. Oh, that's awesome. I think they must have picked up on it somewhere because I think it was torn down a few years later. <laughs> <laughs> what what else did you do uh, aside from make these wonderful sculptures during your time in the uh, military? Like, what was your assigned position? Would you say? Well, when when I when I first got over there, they um, uh, they assigned me to uh, what was called headquarters company because I had uh, some uh, you know a year and a half of architecture school, so I was a draftsman. So uh, uh, I got into a, a place, uh, this, this uh, was a drafting office where we drew up plans for different kinds of things that the army, you know, wanted, none of which they ever built. You know, it just was make busy work, I thought. And it was interesting because I was the only um, American soldier in the office and all the other people were German civilians. And the chief of the office was, a, was an, an American, but he was left over from World War II. And he would come out because he had married a German woman, I think. So he relocated in, in Germany and he would come out of the office and complain. Now, this is an American office. So I want everybody speaking English because I was trying to learn German from all my colleagues. You know, we said we'd sit and talk German all the time. Jeez, we drafted up a, um, a building that was going to be built out of um, surplus, like six inch steel pipes. And then we're going to weld it all together. And we did all this big you know, drafting. They never built it. It was, you know, just somebody's crazy idea. So, it, and, and they also, it was a really interesting thing, too, is they had these uh, great little workshops uh, for people to go to. Uh, but I mean workshops and, like, shops where you could do things. Uh, you could go to in after hours. And so I learned how to do centrifugal casting, which is, like, 
it's the way they make jewelry, but I also was making little sculptures doing that. And um, then there was a ceramics place and I'd do ceramic pots and stuff like that. And so I kept, you know, I kept myself busy. Taking those skills after your time in the military, what was your path afterwards? How did the military affect your life? When, when I was when I was in the military and you got out, you didn't tell anybody. <laughs> well, oh, really? Oh, no, it, was, it wasn't very popular. It was, this is the time of the Vietnam War. And, um, you know, I, I didn't I was not a supporter of the war. One of the first things I did when I when I got out of the army was go to a peace march in Chicago. Uh, so, you know, you, you really didn't. It wasn't until recently that I even uh, kind of admitted that I that I was a vet because in those days there was not. Um, People didn't look heavily on it. Now, now they, uh, you know, everybody's saying, "Oh, thank you for your service." It's almost embarrassing. <laughs> At that point, what did you decide to do with your life? Continue working on art? Well, like, what direction did you? Yeah, I did. Well, you know, like I said, I was an architecture major when I was drafted, and when I got out of the army, I said, you know, look, I've I've already been through all this. There's no sense in me trying to uh, uh, have some kind of a serious, uh, you know, business kind of career. Let me just be an artist, which is what I really wanted to be. And so um, when I my I, I got out and I went to a, just a, a community college to start with because that was a way of getting out of the army early. But I took art courses there and uh, I befriended a, a, a fellow who um, commissioned me to do several things. I made a, um, a big stained glass window for him and I made a painting. Um, and you may, you may have heard of the Lord of the Rings um, trilogy. Uh, actually, four books because the first one was The Hobbit. And uh, I was very fond of that. I read it when I was in the army. And so I made a painting of uh, Bilbo Baggins sitting on the side of the hill with little mushrooms and stuff around and stuff like that for him. That's amazing. What sources of material have you really found inspiration from? Well, you know, being a sculptor, uh, I, I was just absolutely fascinated by every kind of material. I started off in wood because that was, you know, what carpenters work with and uh, cabinet makers. And for a while I was a cabinet maker. Um, but then, uh, and it's really kind of funny because as a young man or as a kid, I had pyrophobia. I was, if somebody would light a match near me, I would, you know, startle and, and, um, it went back to, to when I was an infant or something, but it was uh, an interesting thing that when I went to Cooper Union, I learned how to weld. And that's when I got rid of the pyrophobia because like you're right there, you got your face right in the fire, you know, you got to get over it. So, and we did all kinds of, um, you know, every kind of uh, uh, material and stuff, uh, we, bronze casting. Um, and I built a, uh, a large centrifugal caster for, um, for Cooper Union for the sculpture department when I was there. Um, I learned lathe work. Well, I actually learned lathe work when I was a little kid um, in, in junior high. They had summer programs where you could go in and, and work in workshop and they had a metal lathe there. So everybody would make cannons on the metal lathe and then try to sneak boring them out when the instructor wasn't looking. <laughs> what, what is metal lathing? Just because just I honestly well, don't know what it is. Um, it's a machine where you take a, a piece of round metal stock and you put it in the machine and the, and the machine turns and you put a tool against it and it carves it into whatever shape you want. So if you, okay. for instance, you, you look at those spindles on a, um, on a banister going up the stairs, those are turned on a wood lathe. So oh, you see it's yeah. 
repetitive uh, circular uh, carving. I gotcha. So I did all kinds of things like that. I did, you know, like I said, bronze casting. Uh, I I, uh, I made films. Um, uh, I made made a like stop camera action film of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's drawings, and um, I made another. Uh, wasn't a feature length thing. It was only about 10 or 15 minutes long, but I made a, a, a film where we, um, I, it was filmed in eight millimeter at that, at that time. It was all, it's not like digital where you have now. It's actually had film stock where we had to cut it and splice it together and stuff like that. So a friend of mine from the army and I went up, we went upstate and, uh, filmed this, uh, this movie up in the woods. It was really kind of fun. Wow. Yeah. What, what was the focus of the movie? It was really kind of a, like a, a, a fantasy movie that uh, it starts off with my friend uh, drinking a glass of water and then it cuts into him driving up in the country and going out through the woods and, and stuff like that. And then it ends with him putting the glass of water down. So it was all just like the, the sort of daydream he had while he was drinking the glass of water. Uh, it sounds like such an amazing piece to watch. I, I enjoyed it, but I'm not so sure how good it was. <laughs> <laughs> how easy would you say modern technology has made um, film production and all the the artistry that you've done? How easy would you say modern technology has made it? Well, just just to address um, the the idea of um, filmmaking, uh, at, at at first, like I said, the first film I made was with eight millimeter, and you know had to splice the the, the film together and stuff like that. Um, later, shortly after that they developed um, these what, what were called porta packs. It was a, a three quarter inch, you know, three quarter inch um, tape, reel to reel tape that was that you would have a, um, a recording device that was about 14 inches square and about eight inches thick that you'd carry on a, in a little backpack and then have a camera that was about, you know, a foot long, weighed about five or 10 pounds and you'd carry that around and you'd make these videotapes. But it was since it was so easy to do that, you could shoot hours and hours and hours of tape. I, th I think it, it became a learning curve for people to learn how to be disciplined in what they were shooting. Now to change gears, as a Cooper Union alum, how would you describe your experience there? How did it affect your life after college and your military experiences? You know, Cooper Union was was a great experience. It was one of the one of the best art schools. I worked with um, you know some pretty famous artists some very good artists and um, it was a real great development in terms of um, you know what I learned there. Also I, I also worked for a, a very good sculptor prior to going to Cooper Union who was a great portrait sculptor and I learned how to do that sort of stuff so I could do portraits you know sculptor portraits and things too. But uh, sculpt sculptor portrait just out of curiosity. Like a bust of you know somebody's head. Oh, okay. Yeah. So if you like, you go into the museums and you see these uh, bronzes or, or or marbles that looks that's supposed to be somebody. Yeah. Sorts of things. Yeah. So after Cooper Union, well, while I was at Cooper Union, I actually worked there. I, I got on staff, and um, since I'd been to a number of different colleges, I actually stopped taking classes the semester before I graduated, and was just working at at Cooper Union. At the same time, I had my own loft, which is a studio, and I was making sculptures and, and cabinets and stuff in that. So after I graduated from Cooper, I worked there for uh, a couple of years. 
And since it was only part-time, uh, there was a job offered at uh, Brooklyn College, which was full-time. So I took that and went over there and worked in the sculpture department there. So that didn't pay a lot of money. And I was, uh, I was, I was looking for um, a job at another college that perhaps paid a little bit more money and just was not finding anything. And my wife said, well, why don't you go to law school? You like to argue. And I said, no, I don't. So I ended up going to law school. As because so many artists, you know, you have to have a day job because it's very hard to make make a living as an artist. Some people can do it, but not many. So most artists have day jobs. Many, many famous artists were teachers and things. And I just ended up, instead of driving a cab or waiting on tables, I ended up going to law school and becoming a lawyer. Would you say your skills in art had transferability to uh, working in law? Yeah, I, I believe so. You know, a lot, when I was interviewing to go to law school, um, people would say to me, how can you this be? You know, like you're, you're an artist, you want to be a lawyer? What's the connection? I said, well, look, they're both problem solving. An artist simply invents his own question and solves it, and the solution is the artwork. Whereas you, if you're in law, the, the question's presented to you. You have to solve it. So it's, it's really just kind of a similar, um, to me, it was a, a similar, uh, you know, intellectual discipline. What, what sort of law did you focus on as a lawyer? Interestingly, uh, when I was in law school, they said, what are you going to, what do you see yourself five years from? And I said, well, anywhere but criminal law. And the first job I got getting out of, the, of uh, law school was in the DA's office. So I was a, a prosecutor for uh, four or five years. And then um, uh, I, I knew a judge who wanted me to be his law clerk. So I went and worked for him for a couple of years. And that was very interesting because you learn all kinds of Every type of law that would come across the judge's bench, you know, across his desk, would something I'd be exposed to. So that was that was a very good experience. And um, after that, I went to do medical malpractice defense, which was also very interesting because you learn all about uh, medicine and operations and things that do doc doctors do right and wrong. And then uh, I just went into my own general practice, uh, working for myself for the longest period of time and. A little bit of everything, but mostly I did criminal defense. What would you say brought you towards criminal every time? Like you started to stray away, but you'd eventually always come back. What do you think would was the thing that brought you back to it every time? I just found it very, um, I found it easy. Um, so I was taking the lazy way out. <laughs> and uh, now if you ask me to do tax or something like that, I'd like my, I'd, you know, I'd faint. It was always very interesting because... Um, you know, you're always looking in the paper to see if my case is there because it's that it was those kinds of things. Wow. Yeah. You know how people like to watch um, uh, crime programs and stuff, but this was living. What What were some of the cases you worked like? What would you say was your most notable case, if you're allowed to talk about it? I have to say it was a capital murder case. Oh, my. Um, when the – in 1995, when they um, – the governor uh, pushed through this uh, capital uh, murder statute. Uh, someone suggested that I get involved in it because what happened is that the um, you had to be specially trained in order to defend those cases. They had a whole, uh, you know, the, 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 the DA's office, the prosecutors, they already were geared up to do it. But there were certain things you had to learn to, to do the defense. So I got qualified to do that. And... Um, 
I, I think I was one of the first guys out here in Suffolk County. I got involved in, in, in a couple of cases. And then, um, as it turned out, there was a case that was going to trial, and there was a conflict between one of the attorneys and the defendant. And uh, the other attorney had uh, inquired if I would be interested in stepping in. I said, sure, I'll do it. And uh, next thing I knew, I got a call from the judge, and he said, would you, would you take this other guy's place because he's being recusing himself from the case? So I did, and they had already picked a jury, uh, and they were ready to start the trial. And of course, you know, the judge says, you know, I'm not gonna give you any adjournment. And I said, oh, of course not, judge. And uh, as soon as he appoints me, I said, judge, I need an adjournment. <laughs> but we ended up going to trial, and uh, it was, uh, you know, the, the whole process was uh, very interesting because normally in criminal defense, you don't have a lot of resources to build up your defense. But in capital defense, the state was paying for the defense. So we had the opportunity to hire all kinds of experts, do all kinds of special uh, tests and uh, you know whatever it, whatever it was we needed to do for the defense. But it was uh, an entirely losing case because they had um, uh, DNA evidence that was overwhelming. So the guy was convicted and then there's a second phase to the trial, which is the uh, the, the um, penalty phase. And in that, the, the state argues for the death penalty, and we argue against it. And there was a little little uh, um, aspect of the whole process that uh, uh, my co-counsel and I said, if, if anything is going to save this case, this will do it. And sure enough... Um, we had asked for a certain charge to the jury. When the jury is sent out to make their deliberations, the judge reads them the law, instructs them on how to do their deliberations. We had made a certain kind of request that the, the jury be charged in a certain way, and the judge refused to do it. Well, they came back, they found for the death penalty, and uh, the guy was sentenced to death. And he was up on death row in Danamora. Well, the case went up on appeal, and when uh, it went before the Court of Appeals in the state of New York, the Court of Appeals agreed with the idea that my co-counsel and I had argued that this was wrong for the judge not to charge this particular aspect that we wanted him to charge. And they said the death penalty, for that reason, the death penalty is unconstitutional. And they didn't reverse his conviction, but they reversed the penalty part. So now he's in jail you know, without parole for the rest of his life. The New York State death penalty is unconstitutional and nobody else has been charged under it. Now, to, to bring to more modern day, what, what is some of the work you're pursuing now? Yeah, I, I, I've uh, a kind of a limited practice. Uh, you know, once in a while, an old client will come back to me and ask me to do things. But most of the work I'm doing right now is guardianship. And that's, uh, I'm working with the guardianship court with People who are, most of their adults who have, for one reason or another, incapacity that they can't take care of their own affairs. You know, it's usually somebody who's older and they're, you know, getting dementia uh, or maybe Alzheimer's or something and they can't, they can't pay their own bills. Maybe they can't drive. Maybe they can't uh, remember to take their medicines. So I've been involved in those types of cases from everything from, from um, investigating the case for the court or to representing the person as a lawyer, 
And for a couple of people, I'm their guardian. What does this being a guardian of someone entail? I guess. Well, like for instance, um, I have to pay their bills you know, with their money. I would, I make a bank account that I have control over and I pay their bills. Uh, if they need to go to the hospital, maybe I, you know, or, or that somebody calls me from the hospital and say, can you consent to this procedure? Since they're, they're not able to do it themselves. I do it for them. Um, if they need to go out, and after they go, say, leave the hospital, they go to rehab, they go to um, uh, a place to live, I make those arrangements for them. Taking all your experience in law and art, what would you say across any career, what would you say is some of the most important skills for someone to build? Well, you have, uh, I, I guess, you know, what's what's interchangeable in all, in all um, uh, disciplines is... Um, applying yourself, having patience. That's one of the things about, um, I, I guess it's most transferable between uh, art and law. And that is that um, you have to have patience. You know, people work on an art, when you work on an artwork, you have to have a lot of patience to work on it hour after hour after hour. And I think the same thing applies like for the law. It's not something you, done, you do quickly and, and without uh, thought and preparation and uh, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. And in both instances. I see. Now, specifically for each of uh, each law and art, what would you say is for someone who wants to build a practice or wants to um, make their name known in the art world? What would you say would be the way for them to do that? Well, you know, uh, I think the, the first thing is to be good at what you're doing. Try to be the best in, in anything. Uh, you know, in, in art, they say, you know, you should try to make your, your work interesting uh, so that someone looks at it and says, oh, I like that, you know, and they'll continue to have interest in you and in your art. In law, of course, you want to be good. You want to you be able, if you're representing somebody, whether it's defending them in a criminal matter or prosecuting something for them and say somebody is like has an injury and they want want to get money for their injury you know if you get the money that makes you happy it makes them happy and same thing with like uh you know whatever whatever you do to try to be good at it now some some people practice these professions um and just like model along make an adequate living and uh you know they're happy with it if but if you have your own personal goals of being the best you can possibly be you have a better chance of success, I guess. If, if nothing else, you make yourself happy. Would you say that career fulfillment is extremely important in um, both of these professions? I think if you're talking about personal feeling, of, uh, a feeling of personal uh, fulfillment, uh, I think it's important in life. Uh, you know, it, why should you work at a job that you don't enjoy? Why should you go to yeah. work uh, someplace where you say, I can't wait till I go home tonight? The, the, the best thing you can hear from anybody, and, and I hear this from lawyers, and I, you know, I enjoy doing law work also, but I more enjoy doing uh, uh, art. And so somebody who says, I don't consider what I'm doing work. I enjoy going and doing what I do. That's the best thing. And that's, you know, you're going to live your life like that. Thank you for the wonderful advice. What would you say was one of your favorite accomplishments in art that you one of your most significant to you 
In 2004, I was commissioned to make a sculpture for the Pope. And uh, I did. And in 2005, uh, in January, I went to Rome and was honored to personally present it to him. So that was pretty neat. What was the sculpture of? It was um, a pair of hands holding a globe and it was cast in glass. So I modeled a, a, a pair of hands, made a mold of it, uh, went to a place where we did casting and I worked with another guy who helped me cast it. We cast it in glass and then I finished it uh, up and um, uh, took it over to Rome and, um, and gave it to him. It was a private, uh, a private audience of about 160 people in, uh, in the Vatican in this beautiful, oh, you know, Renaissance room, and the Pope came in and, and uh, talked to us and stuff, and everybody went up and, uh, you know, greeted him, and I got to go up and give him the sculpture. If you had to say, like, what message do you usually try to bring with your art? I'm, I'm very interested in the human condition. Uh, what we're involved in here is we are um, uh, living on the earth for the short period of time. Our interaction with the earth, which means nature and weather and, and all that sort of uh, you know stuff, because we're not isolated from our environment. We're part of it, and we're products of our environment. And enjoying that and uh, uh, celebrating that is what I think uh, my art's mostly about. Speaking on these themes, would you say that your Dave Brubeck's hand casting embodies this? Or oh, yes. I, have, uh, I, I made uh, Dave Brubeck uh, a number of years back. And it was a, some kind of a special uh, dinner thing in, in New York City. And I got tickets from another guy who said he didn't even know who Dave Brubeck was. So I'll go. So we went and it was then we were honored to have dinner with him. I mean, it was like, you know, like 80 people or so, but like we were all hanging around and talking and stuff. And so I we, we got a chance to talk with him for a couple of minutes. And I said, you know, Mr. Brubeck, your hands are the most incredible hands that just they're very expressive and, and and beautiful and I said I'm a sculptor would you pose for me so I could I'd like to make a sculpture of your hands and he said sure so about a year later I um I wrote him a letter and I said you know remember you promised I could uh, do this and he says okay contact my assistant so I contacts his assistant and we set up a date and I drove up to um I think he lived near Fairfield uh, Connecticut and I drove up to his house and um, I went in there and his assistant said, how'd you get him to do this? He never does anything like this. And I said, oh. and I spent an hour or two with him making models that I could, that I could uh, work from. And, uh, you know, we were chatting and he was just a wonderful guy. And, uh, and like I said, it, his hands were just incredibly expressive. They were really great. Though, though you two are from different art professions, would you say that it was very easy for you two to converse just to respect each other's arts? I'm sorry, I don't understand. Like, you're, you're an artist, and he was a um, musician. Would you say that you were both able to connect on that sort of level? It was a connection that really brought you two together? Well, I think probably, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, for instance, he was a, a, a very generous man, um, both in his uh what he did with his art you know he he did so much for making jazz accessible to people who weren't jazz fanatics you know almost everybody knows take five you know 
it's it's yeah. people that don't spend a lot of time listening to Coltrane or or some of those other guys, they know Dave Brubeck. So he was generous with his his gift to people in general with what he did, and he was certainly very generous with me, allowing me to interact with him and and make the sculpture. Similarly, thank you for being so generous with your time, Mr. Von Schmidt. If you'd like to check out Mr. Von Schmidt's work, find him at www.von-schmidt.com, which is linked in the description below. There you can find the Dave Brubeck piece along with many others we didn't mention. Thanks for watching, everybody, and please remember to like, subscribe, and hit that bell so you don't miss any new videos. If you want to follow the primary source for more career, financial, or success advice, Check me out on Instagram at The Real Primary Source. Have a fantastic January, and I'll be back again next month.